you will, flip or tap your way on over to 1 John chapter 2. If you're new to the Library of Scriptures, never be afraid. Use the table of contents. If you hit Revelation, you've gone a little bit too far. Uh, We're going to start and finish our teaching there in that first letter of uh, either the Apostle John or John the Elder, however you read it. Uh, We're going to be right there at the start and the finish as we uh, continue our way through this series as it is. And so 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. And if you are in your living room or maybe you're still in bed (laughs) this morning, I would just invite you uh, out of honor for God's word, would you stand as we, we take in the living word of God? So stand with me as we read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And you can either climb back into bed or sit down on the couch wherever you're at. So here we are in this third week in a series uh, where we're reminding ourselves who we are as a community and who we're hopeful to be. This whole little series is As It Is, which has been framed out by Christy a couple weeks ago on that little section in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And in light of that, at the Gateway Church, we just say we want it to be here in Des Moines as it is in heaven. And so we want to pursue the presence of God. We want to be formed out of the image of the world and into the image by the power of the Spirit and join God in the renewal of all things. Today, we attend to that middle section and really the first part of that middle section And so as we get going, uh, a few framing words on that previous statement, out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. In the biblical imagination, so this is the mind and therefore the understanding of the writers of the Bible and the library of scripture, uh, the word image, it's less about your appearance, what you might look like in a mirror, or even your status among people. Uh, think about uh, if an image is related to celebrity. You think about the image of a celebrity, which is somebody who's well-known for being well-known. Kind of an interesting little thing there. Uh, the image is not that. R- rather, image, it's at least as the Bible's concerned, it's more about vocation and worship. What you do as a defining piece of who you are. And then how you ascribe worth to any given thing. See, image, it's not this peripheral idea. That is, it's not on the sidelines in the scriptures. It's front and center. At page one, you open up the scriptures and there it is. So Genesis chapter one, verse 27, it's this little poetic reflection on God's creative work. We read these words, Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. 
The Hebrew word there is uh, the word selam. And Hebrew is just uh, the language that the Old Testament was originally written in. And this word selam, it's the same word used for icons or idols. And we'll come to that in a moment. For now, just two reflections. First, notice that all of humanity bears God's image. This is male and female. And this may feel like to us sitting here in 2021, kind of like a no duh type of statement. Like, of course, all of humanity bears God's image. But in the time and place and communities within which Genesis arrived, this was a radical claim. See, if humanity, all of humanity bears God's image, that means that every person is indelibly marked by God with dignity and honor. Therefore, every person reflects God's goodness out into the world, which is just this alarmingly beautiful statement that frames out how we see people. (laughs) This just comes to us page one. This is front and center. And that actually brings us to our second observation about image, namely that the image or selam, it's about humanity's vocation, what we are to do. And we see that in the previous verse because this poetic reflection in verse 27 is riffing on what has come before it. So this is what we read in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make mankind or humanity in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move on the ground. Let us Make them in our image and likeness so they may rule. The image is connected, like caught up in ruling and reigning. And this isn't like you rule, like O'Doyle rules or like how we would say, oh, that rules in the 90s. No, this, this is about your vocation, what you do. And this is all of humanity, male and female, holding the position as those who reign and rule on God's behalf with God. Not separate from, but with the creator God. In the context of Genesis, this means that humanity is called to partner with God to push the bounds of Eden out into all of the world, to to like extend the bounds of God's creative goodness. And just a a quick aside here, A common conception holds that Eden was this place of uh, perfection. And indeed, it was this place where God's space, heaven and earth overlapped. And there was union and intimacy. And the idea there is less about perfection and more about possibility. It's that this place is brimming with potential, just packed full. And humanity's call is to unleash that potential on the entirety of the world with God. In other words, humanity is called to continue God's creative process for the good of all creation, which that, that's still the call, <laughs> to partner with God through his very personal presence for the flourishing of the world. We see that completely in Jesus, but don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because to bear God's image, which Jesus does completely, is is about God's work in the world. And that work ascribes worth to God. And what's really beautiful about this whole scene is that as humanity partners with God, ascribing worth to the work they're doing, that's a way that we define worship. Worship is simply saying this thing is worthy. You're ascribing worth to it. And so as humanity partners with God in this creative process, as they work, their work is worship. 
Do you ever think about that? That your work actually has the potential to honor God, to ascribe worth to a thing? And we may not pick up on this, but this whole framework that humanity would bear God's image, all of them, male and female, this is like a super punk rock move because this is an upside down move. It cuts against the grain of the dominant narrative of the culture because in that time and place, the the place within which Genesis arrived, man, like only one person, the king, that king represented the gods to the people. And as the people were going to serve the gods, whether they be for fertility or for the viability of their crops, they had to come and offer worship to the king, which was in turn worship to the gods. So it was like there was a mediator and there was not direct access. And yet, Yahweh makes a different claim. The creator God makes a different claim through the people of Israel that it's not just one person who bears the image. All of humanity bears the image. All of humanity, male and female, are called to reign and rule, to push the bounds of flourishing out into all of creation, to show what God is like. And it's this context that creates the condition for what follows. And here's what I mean. Just two pages later, Genesis 3 unfolds and this strange and mysterious evil that is embodied in a serpent comes onto the scene. And the serpent begins to question the reliability of the creator God and his claims. Specifically, this dialogue goes down with Eve. And quickly, these questions, they give way to doubt and disillusionment, which then gives way to this active rebellion, to trusting in what the serpent has said more than what God has said. It's a rebellion and a redefinition. And many in our tradition, which is loosely Protestant, uh, know this moment as the fall. But I think Dr. Tim Mackey, you may know him from the Bible Project, I I think that he gives a helpful title to this that is, uh, I think, just more accurate to what's going on. He calls this the human fallout. So it's not just the fall, like a fall from grace, but it is the human fallout because this moment is where humanity goes rogue. This is where humanity foregoes their partnership with God, rebellion, and then they turn inward and they they occupy the space as the ones who define good and bad according to their own terms. That's the redefinition. And in this moment, the image is marred. That, that, That connection with goodness that God had spoken over creation and very good over humanity is now marred because humanity is defining that goodness according to their own desires. No longer does their work ascribe worth, but the work and the worship are disordered. And if we were to, if we're, if we're to wrap our arms around what it might look like to be a community and, and people within a community who are transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, then we need to see what flows out of humanity's rebellion and redefinition. And, and this will actually be our focus for the remainder of our time, just focusing on this statement, out of the image of the world. So uh, just to keep cheering you up here today, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we read about this moment, the human fallout. Here it is. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she 
took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And now my guess is most of you who are watching here uh, on the internet, uh, that you're aware of this story. Maybe even in just caricature form, you've seen a picture of uh, like, I don't know, a, a European man and woman around a tree with a serpent and fig leaves or something like that. This is a potent story. In fact, this story is like the archetypal story that gets replayed time and time and time again throughout the scriptures of humanity redefining good and evil on their own terms. And in the wake of that, like there's pleasure in the moment. She sees that it's good for eating and desirable for wisdom. She takes it and then there's shame and isolation that follows. That's exactly what happens. In the wake of this rebellion, humanity no longer sees themselves according to the goodness that God has spoken over them in creation. Instead, that goodness devolves into shame and isolation. And that's not just isolation from one another. That's isolation from God. See, the moment that that we see unfold is that God's looking for them. And they're like hiding, Adam and Eve. And then this encounter happens like, where are you at? What happened? What's going on? And there's blame shifting that takes place. It's this quick devolving into shame and isolation. And this is what theologians go on to call the human condition. It's this place of perpetual hiding and shame. And the whole of scripture describes this place as as a place of destruction in the language of Jesus or exile in the Hebrew Bible. And ultimately, it is a place that leads to death. The Apostle Paul's words uh, are words that are uniquely cemented in many followers of Jesus's minds. Like, if you're like me, that you got the Romans road treatment. And so you knew that the wages of sin is death. And those were like capstone words. You're like, oh my gosh, the wages of sin is death. Notice here, maybe this will be a little refresh here. Notice that Paul does not say the wages for sin are death. No, it's, it's as, as though God is some sort of cosmic death dealer. No, it, it says, Paul says the wages of sin is death. Sin is the one that pays you back, not God. God doesn't need to do anything for humanity to drive itself into ruin. And, and I, I draw all this out and I put all this before us as a community so that we would highlight, so we would clearly see what we all know and experience in our bodies, in our institutions, in our culture, namely that the world that God intended to flourish according to his definition of good and evil is now fragmented by sin. That those places that are meant to bring life and goodness also are places that bring manipulation and hurt and pain. The world is not as it should be chaotic and disordered rather than beautiful and ordered. See, not only is the image marred, so too is the world that the image of God inhabits. It's a place that is riddled with shame and guilt and anxiety and self-protection and anger and malice and contempt and like a full range of stuff. And it's so pervasive that the writers of the Bible actually describe the world in such a way that it takes on its own character. It's this collective system standing in opposition to God's flourishing. 
So take the Apostle John, for example, in John 15. This is uh, John 13 to 17 or is this like some of the most beautiful words of Jesus in all of the scriptures. And this upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer, the, the coming of the Spirit, all of this is packed in there. And in John 15, where we typically think about uh, the life in the vine, abide in me and I'll abide in you, that whole thing. Um, you can do nothing apart from me, that section. Well, what comes right after are these words in John 15, 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. See, what the writers of the New Testament call the world, what John is describing the system opposed to God's flourishing, many of us would simply call that culture today, especially in cities like our own. This is just in the air we breathe. Ronald Rollheiser, who's a, a Catholic theologian, thinker, beautiful work on kind of like stage theory, how we grow up into maturity. He has this statement in this work on rediscovering the felt presence of God, and he makes this potent observation. So this is Ronald Rollheiser on the world. It says, Western culture today is so powerful and alluring that it often swallows us whole. Its beauty and power and promise generally take away both our breath and our perspective. The lure of present salvation, and this captured my imagination, the lure of present salvation, money, sex, creativity, the good life, has for the most part entertained, amused, distracted, and numbed us into a state where we no longer have a perspective beyond that of our culture and its short-range soteriology. If that last word sounds a bit technical, it's because it is. Soteriology is the study of salvation. So in other words, he's saying we cannot see past a disordered vision of the good life. We think that things like money, sex, Creativity will be the things that will save us from our present chaotic selves, from the disordered desires, the pain we feel in our body, that the moments, the, the constant newsreels that another person has been shot and they are dead. We cannot see beyond those short-range soteriologies. And part of the potency is that Rollheiser's observation is for us. It's for followers of Jesus. In other words, we are not immune from a system seeking to, quote unquote, numb us. See, more often than not, this just feels normal. I mean, think about the rhythms throughout your week. Like, I, I know for me and Jess, like, there is a moment when finally the, like, the quiet of two small humans gives way and there's like, oh, we can just chill there is an immediate call not to be present to one another in substantive ways, but to just numb. Like just, I just want, and we call it veg out. I just want to veg out. Well, if, if we just pause for a moment, like that, that is a scary reality. And the, the scarier thing for me is it's just easy. 
It's so easy because I have trained myself to respond to stress at the end of a day, or maybe just, it wasn't even stressful, it was just a lot, to just say, oh, I just wanna, let's just watch a show. Like, and that's, it's pretty benign. And yet you think about the cumulative weight of just watching a show, of just not doing, like, and we are missing the world in front of us. And we ourselves are, are, are and I'm talking about like, when, we, when I say we're missing the world in front of us, we're missing the world as it could be. And we're just receiving it as it is this marred place. There is another way forward with Jesus. So we just have to ask ourselves, where has the lure of the world crept into my life? I tell you what, I have not liked the response that has come to my mind in this. I'm guessing that if you spend time, you may not as well. Think about it this way. If we are hopeful for Jesus's personal presence to break out in and to and through us here at the Gateway Church so that it might be here in Des Moines as it is in heaven, and yet we are unaware of our disordered desires. Like we've never taken stock of our past pattern of sins. We have no idea how our family of origin uh, has trained us to do conflict or like not to do conflict resolution, to, to disagree or not disagree well. We, we simply have no idea how our culture is actively shaping us, consuming our attention. If we are unaware of that, and how the enemy of our soul like deceptively prays and then riffs on those disordered desires, we may sincerely desire to follow Jesus and yet never embody the life of Jesus. It's like it's been a few years, it's been five years, it's been a decade, it's been two decades now that you've been following Jesus and your life is still pretty much the same from when you first started following him. And we just have to ask, where has the lure of the world crept into my life? to the point that I am numb. I'm just kind of waiting for this far off moment of life in the heavens with Jesus after I die. What about the life now? See, to be formed into the image of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, we must know how we've been deformed by the world, how it gets its clutches into us. Not to sit in like a place of shame and self-loathing. Like that's, that's not, this isn't fire and brimstone, like by no means. This is just to soberly submit with a posture, like a framework of humility to invite the spirit to work on us, to ask the spirit to search us. Which that is really, that can be kind of scary. We do it together, but we have to do something. And it's one thing to know that you're an angry person or a workaholic or promiscuous in thought or jealous and do nothing about it. And it's an altogether different thing just to not know those things at all. The former is this active rebellion of God. If you know those things and still remain in them and yet think that God's grace covers you, well, my goodness, Paul has some pretty strong words about crucifying Jesus again in those states. And yet if you know nothing about that, then this is just called ignorance. And that's not a negative sense. It's just you don't know what you don't know. Either, like in either scenario, like both of those things, active rebellion and ignorance need the light of the gospel to shine on them and reveal who they are and who they can be in Jesus. Our image ought not remain marred if we are in Christ. In fact, the old has passed away and the new has come. So what does it mean? to step into that. 
Well, that's for next week. For now, like the image, this idea of the world, we have to remind ourselves is not a peripheral idea. Jesus himself speaks to this, continuing on. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, we hear him talking about the world in this way. Picking up in verse 6, this is what we read, John 17. I have revealed you. Now, Jesus is praying here. And so when he says, I've revealed you, it's this moment where Jesus is talking, communing, in this moment of intimacy with the Father, declaring that he has revealed the Father to his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, and for they are yours." All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And then jump down to verse 13. We see Jesus saying this, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word. Notice the connection between Jesus' joy in the disciples and the giving of the word. And the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Just pause right there for a moment. So often there's this, like this notion, even creeps up in my own heart, that we would retreat, that we would retreat from the chaos. That, that we would say, no, let's like get out of the world and cultivate this inner life with Jesus and intimacy. And that is beautiful. And, and in some seasons that's necessary. And yet Jesus's prayer right here in John 17 is not that we would be evacuated from the world, but rather that we would experience the newness and the joy and the gift of his life and love in the midst of the world, for the world. Verse 16 They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them, refine them, consecrate them, make them holy, all those things. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, to be formed out of the image of the world is to recognize at least two things, and certainly there's way more going on here, but just two. First, it's to recognize that we were at one time a part of the world. Like, it is the thing that defined us. And if this is still fuzzy, the Apostle Paul, for the win here, I think he makes this pretty clear. He says this in a letter that's uh, to be circulated among all of these emerging churches. So this is in Ephesians 2. As for you, now that's plural, so as for y'all, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And what does he mean when he says, followed the ways of this world? Look down. Verse 3, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, rebellion, redefinition, and the way of the world, they lead not to life, but to death. It's almost like a present death that is a precursor for a death to come. Sin will be the one that repays and its payment is death because the wages of sin is death. 
And isn't it tricky to see ourselves in this? Like, start asking the questions like, where has the lure of the world captivated my imagination or won over bits of my heart, things like that. And my goodness, it's hard. It is hard to situate ourselves with sober examination and like withholding judgment and just say, where, where have I bought in to that, to a system opposed to God, whether it be like just compromise with my integrity in the marketplace or, I mean, my goodness, think about all this, the, the talk about systemic racism. Where have I been complacent or complicit in those areas? And I, I think, well, that's not me. And then I start examining, I go, oh my gosh, yeah, like I just, I've, I've, I've never examined those areas of my life. So, so we start asking, this is tricky, it's hard. If your experience is anything like mine, it's way easier to see the world in others. Like I, I, could, I can probably tell you a lot about the way I see the world in you, which I'm not saying this is a gift. This is like, um, I'm definitely in process in this reality, but it's way easier to see the world in others and in systems, white nationalism, all of these things. Like they, like it's easy to see the way the world, that system is opposed to God even though it names the name of Jesus. It is in opposition to God. It's easy to see those things, and yet it's tricky to see it in ourselves. Ironically, this actually leads to the second thing. So the first is that we notice that we were in the world. The second is that we ought to recognize that there's another way. There's another way (laughs) that leads us to life. Like death is not the end in Jesus's name. This is the gospel, that Jesus is king, that he became sin so that we, so that we, like he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is the beauty of the gospel. And so, because there is another way, let us let us turn back to 1 John 2 to, to kind of begin to close. And in light of all of this, the, the marred image that was at one time just this beautiful reality that God declared his goodness over and then a marred world, like in light of all of this, hear verse 15 again. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Just remember, the, the library of scripture, when, th- when discussing and, and talking about the world, kind of envisions three things. Because you might be asking, well, Kyle, I, I'm, I'm thinking of this verse in John 3. Now, I see people, like, remember when people used to be at football games? And you would watch them, and there'd be the dude with the crazy hair, and he'd have John 3.16, for God so loved the world? Are you, I'm confused. Like, who is that? Well, well, generally, when the writers of the New Testament are talking about the world in John, he will have three ways. He'll talk about creation. So this is when God declares that creation is good. So that is the world. And he also will talk about the people in the world. So you have creation, you have people, the image bearers, and then you also have the world as the system that stands in opposition to God's flourishing, which is the focus of that statement in Verse 15, do not love the system opposed to God or anything in a system opposed to God. You could actually read the rest of the passage with that in place, and it would go on to say, if anyone loves the system opposed to God, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in a system opposed to God, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from a system opposed to God. And the system opposed to God and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. See, as John talks about everything in the world, he he describes it with those three things. 
the, the lust of the flesh, the lust, or, or you could say desire in that place uh, of the eyes. So think in that place of, of covetousness and jealousy, and then the pride of life, this desire to be known in all that you do, really apart from God. Like, like really, that is like a place of rebellion. All of this, the way that John talks about these things in the world, it calls our attention back to the story of the marred image and really the human fallout in Genesis 3. See, it's really interesting. Scholars are kind of split as to what John's doing here. Some scholars think that he's actually intentionally pointing us back to Genesis 3. I haven't made up my mind and I'm, I'm like, I find it to be really compelling. But either way, I mean, it, it, is, it is compelling at the end of the day to see this connection between Genesis 3 and what John is spelling out here. So hear this passage again in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it, ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's like John is saying that we will have a garden moment. There will be a moment of temptation. And as for Eve, the food was good. There is going to be the lust or the desires of the flesh. As for her, she saw it was pleasing to the eye. There will be for us this moment where there is a lust, a desire of the eyes. And as she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise, so too there will be a moment when the pride of life, this desirable to be known in all that we do apart from God, that moment will come. We will all have our garden moment where God says one thing and yet our body says another. That lust of the flesh and lust there or desire, it's not just sexual, it is that. But it's also think of gluttony and lust for experiences and just all that life has to offer. Do you want the brownie or the ice cream? Yes, I want it all. It's when God says one thing and then the desires of our eyes, our ambition and our restlessness says another, that discontentedness of soul. God says one thing and our pride says, do not tell me what to do. This is so prevalent. Get your laws off my body. See, it's not just one or the other. It's often all of them at once. But we will all have that garden moment. We'll have that garden moment the moment we go onto our web browser, we'll have that garden moment on Instagram, we'll have that garden moment in the parking lot, we'll have that garden moment in the office, we'll have that garden moment when we wake up in the morning. These things come. We all face it, whether it's one at a time or all of them at once. These are all temptations. And in order for us to be formed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus, we must fight. It's like we must fight the world, but not as the world would fight, but as Jesus fights the world. Now that is all for next week. And yes, that is a teaser. For, for now, here again, this last line in 1 John 2, 17, the world and its desires pass away. It's this line in, in Hebrews, like the, the New Testament is really, really honest that Desire is not a bad thing. The desire is a good thing. That sin can be pleasurable. When you, like, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, if you sleep with your partner and they're outside of marriage, like you sleep with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it will be good in the moment. Like that's how your body is designed. And yet it is only for the moment. It is passing away. 
See, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There's this popular notion that all we need to be concerned about as followers of Jesus, as Christians, is salvation. It's kind of like a salvation culture where it's the salvation of ourselves and then it's the salvation of others if, of course, that aligns with our temperament and our gifting and stuff like that. Uh, And by salvation, what is typically meant is this really judicial sense, this judicial vision, like right standing with God. My sins are covered. They're atoned for. It's a very specific reading of the New Testament where this is where I was and now I'm here. And I'm not not saying that that's absent from the New Testament. By all means, like justification is a reality. And yet this very narrow view of salvation comes to color our whole Christian experience to the point that we would say, well, once we have that, we're all good. But our lived experience says another thing. Because that notion that once we have salvation, that we're all good, it holds life as this far off thing that you step into upon death. And it just plainly neglects the invitation to take hold of life right now so that we might like experience that life in the midst of the world that we live in. The Apostle Paul, this is so beautiful, like when this kind of came into view for me, when he is saying in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, he doesn't stop there. Like there's not a period after that. He goes on. He, he actually says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see the contrast? Death and life. So we want to be transformed out of the image of the world because the world is the place that is the place of death. And that is is a hard place to stand in the world we live in, is it not? And yet we don't stand there just to kind of dig our heels in, to stand as like, I don't know, ornery Christians. Stand there because this, this conviction that no sin leads to flourishing. And that if we say otherwise, we're lying to you. I'm lying to you. We're calling God a liar. So we, we say this because we believe that Jesus is life. That the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Eternal life that breaks into our present and redefines our whole lived experience. You see, it's a gift for here and now. It's a gift that speaks life over condemnation, a gift that helps us in our weakness through the power of the Spirit. It's a gift that is carried by the mercy of God for the children of God. It is a gift that Paul will say like these things, like in light of this mercy, Paul challenges us not to conform to the pattern of the world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then in that place, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Because what we do matters. And Jesus' invitation is one to life where then we can actually do the will of God and live into that place. For us to be transformed out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus, we must recognize that we are starting from a place, a place where there is no condemnation. And yet there still is temptation. And in that place of temptation, there are also deceptive forces 
that are seeking to play off of our disordered desires. But to recognize that place is not to concede defeat. No, to recognize that is the beginning of the fight. Because a recognition like that, where we see that we are in Jesus, is a recognition that there is another way. It is the way of Jesus. It is the way of life. If you want to hear more about that, what it means to step into that, into the image of Jesus, I would just invite you to come. And, and as, we, as we close, I'm going to pray here in a moment, but I just want to say like you doing this, you showing up in this space, it matters. Like one of the chief ways that we actually push back against the, like, the magnetic forces of the world that are, that are seeking to amuse us and entertain us and ultimately numb us is to center our lives around Jesus and his teaching. Not just to think about it, but move it from our head to our heart into our hands. Like to, to have it impress itself upon the fabric of our being to the deepest part of us in our soul so that it changes us from the inside out to gather as the church in whatever way we are able to gather, this matters. So I, I commend you for coming. I commend you for staying. I commend you for being present. So let us continue to do this. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Let us not grow weary in being formed by Jesus out of the image of the world and into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We need you to see ourselves clearly. So just ask that you would refresh our imaginations, that the light of the gospel, that, the, that you reign and rule, that you are for and to us what we perpetually to fail to be for ourselves, that we actually have a place of rest in you, a, a, a place of confidence in you, that we have a place of refuge in you, Jesus. And from that place, we can actually begin to look in at the depths of our disordered desires and receive healing from you to say come holy spirit help us search our hearts show us where the lure of the world has captured our imaginations i would just pray lord like um, for those in our community who do feel like they have like been captured by that, would you release, would you bring breakthrough in your name, Jesus, in the power of your name, would you bring breakthrough for us so that we might continue to live with you in deeper and deeper intimacy. So come, Jesus, we pray. Amen.